Welcome back, boys and girls. Today, I have Victoria and Darcy on. She is a doctor in functional medicine. We're going to talk about supplements and many different things, including women's health and men's health. So it should be a fun interview. My name is Mike. Every week, I discuss topics that I care about. Hopefully, you find them of value as well. Today's Daily Dose is partly brought to you by Grass Store. Cannabis delivery made simple. Save a whopping 40% on your first purchase. Just use the code DAILY at checkout. The rest of the sponsor links are in the description below, and it does help the channel a great deal, so I do appreciate it. You'll also find Dr. Andarcia's info down below as well. Let's jump into it. Well, um, I do have clinic hours now because uh, I was doing telehealth like solely before, so I'm seeing clients in the office two days a week. And I decided after our last conversation that I was going to kind of focus a little bit more in on gut health and hormones, because that's the majority of what I was seeing anyways, which has been helpful. And I've really, I've been working with a lot of like perimenopausal females lately. And that's been really cool because uh, recently I had one who she came to me because she was tired all the time, didn't feel good. And her gynecologist had told her, well, you already had kids yeah, your hormones are probably off, but you're 45 and that's normal. So well, she didn't feel normal. She didn't feel good. So that's when she came to me. And when we did her hormone test, we saw it wasn't just her sex hormones that were off. It was also her cortisol levels, right? Like she was just like giving and giving from an empty cup and she was a runner, right? So like when you're stressed at work, you're stressed at home and then you're running, like that's a lot of physical, mental and emotional stress that you're putting yourself through. So I told her, listen, like, let's kind of work on some lifestyle things. You're going to have to stop running for a little while, do a little bit more yoga, slow flow things. We tried her on supplements, which of course are always temporary while we're fixing um, the underlying issue, which was her body's response to the stress. She had had irregular periods for seven years. And I thought too, like, okay, she's going to be menopausal soon. She has regular periods now. And I didn't even do any hormone therapy on her. What I did was I corrected her body's stress response because what a lot of people don't realize is that your body is going to prioritize survival, which is cortisol, right? Over sex hormones. So when you're getting to that period where your body's already taxed, you're going through perimenopause and your cortisol levels are out of whack, that can affect your sex hormones or what's left of them. And just by fixing her body's um, hormone response, she got her periods back and she feels great. Now she's training for two 10 Ks and she's not getting as tired as she was, but it was just about, Hey, let's go back to the underlying cause. So I've had, since I'm working mostly with perimenopausal women now, I have seen a lot of similar cases, which has been so cool. I bet rewarding too. Cause um, I imagine some of these women are like, well, my doctor said this, I guess this is what I have to live with forever, but it's not That's the case. Correct. And that's one of the most disheartening things when I, when they come to me and they're like, well, my gynecologist said that, you know, I'm just perimenopausal and this is how I have to live for the rest of my life. I'm like, why, why would you say that to someone? There's so much that you can do, right? Not just like hormone therapy, but there are, you know, supplements that you can give people things you can look into and they get so dismissed all the time. And then when they start working with me, like everyone starts getting better to different degrees, right? But like by working on, you know, whether it's their gut health, stress, the actual hormones, even their relationships get better. You know, I'm thinking of two women in particular that I could, I remember when they came to me, they were like, oh, 
you know, my kids are kind of annoying in the afternoon. I can't stand it. You know, my husband, this, and then you start them on the like, hormone therapy and they're like, well, I love my life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and everything changes. It sounds like my wife right now <laughs> with two children and young children. It sounds exactly like what she's going through and it sucks. Um, and when you mentioned supplements, I mean, what kind of supplements uh, would you like lean towards? Of course, everyone is different, but in right. one instance or another, like what could somebody uh, consider that's over the counter that would uh, even slightly adjust those hormone hormone levels? Well, so there's there's a one I definitely think a lot of people would benefit from, and that's magnesium. I you know like and especially the blends, not just like magnesium oxide or citrate, but the blends of magnesium doing that at night significantly helps with sleep mood and with digestion if that's an issue but then as far as like the stress component goes i do end up using a lot of adaptogens you mentioned ashwagandha um and ashwagandha is great but i i like to use like blends of things so like multiple adaptogens as well is what i tend to use and then for people who have like low cortisol levels then it's like, how do we kind of bring those up? One of the supplements you can use for that is like licorice root if they don't have high blood pressure. So I'll use that to kind of help them bring that up while we're working on the lifestyle factors. But yeah, it tends to be blends, magnesium I love. And then if they have like low DHEA or pregnenolone, then I'll supplement them with that as well. But, you know, I usually test because the issue too is with the cortisol levels. In the morning, you wake up, it's a little bit higher, and then it peaks in the mid-morning, and then it kind of just goes down, right, as your day settles down. But what I've seen is that for some people who are chronically stressed, kind of like a flat line, and then it won't really, they're not really stimulated. So for me, for those people, they act like they're high cortisol, but they're like burnt out, and they really have low cortisol. So that's why I prefer to test, because I don't want to like bring cortisol levels down further. That makes sense. Um, through, uh, when you say tests, you're talking about like blood tests? So for cortisol, you can do salivary or urinary tests. Wow. Um, I mean, traditionally, for average people like myself, when we think of cortisol, we've been told that high levels of cortisol are relating to just being uh, having a stressed body overall. Is, is that correct or is that incorrect? No, that's correct. But what happens is that over time, right, like everybody's stressed all the time or the levels of perceived stress, how you perceiving stress on the day to day is that if you're constantly like stress, 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 yeah, you're going to be high until your body can't really make that much cortisol anymore. And so you just kind of like flatline, right? Your body's trying to make it, but it really can't make as much. And so what happens is that then the metabolism of cortisol slows down to maintain you. So even though you're acting like you have high cortisol, really you have low cortisol levels and your body's just like slowing down to keep it up. But then what happens there, that's when those women will see, I mean, and guys too, but I work with women, will see that their sex hormones are off and they don't have to be perimenopausal. Like I've had young women in their thirties with low you know, progesterone and their cortisol level is like a really flat line. So you have to really consider is stress affecting your sex hormones. That's that's a lot to take in all at once. Yeah. <laughs> but um what made you decide to uh like focus on this specific group of people? Is it that 
there's uh, quite a large number of women uh, struggling with this or is it uh, what, what was the reasoning? I'm sure there's many areas you could have um, participated in. Well, for me, it was my own hormonal struggle. So I stopped taking birth control and then I had been on birth control for like 10 years. I didn't, I didn't know anything about hormones, which I realized is weird because I went to medical school until I started struggling with my hormones and I started doing like research and taking these courses. And then I was like, wow, we don't learn this in medical school. And then I started tweaking like my own things, doing the same things like with the adaptogens, with the licorice root, you know, stress management. And I got better. And then women were coming to me and they're like, my gynecologist said this. And I'm like, wait a second. There is such a disconnect between how good you can feel and what traditional medicine is doing for women that I decided that that's where I wanted to focus because you can, you really see a difference and it doesn't take that long. Like within six months, that woman I told you about had regular periods and was feeling great and is now training for two 10 Ks, but it was identifying the issue. And you said she was 45, correct? Age 45. 45. Yeah. Wow. That's really incredible. I mean, um, some of the, some of the things I've read is that, uh, generally people are discouraged from functional medicine because of how long it takes. And obviously in our society, we've been, uh, really conditioned to, um, desire and appreciate just fast acting and, uh, quick results. Um, have you, have you noticed that from any patients who are like, this is taking too long or I'm not seeing anything? quite yet i mean i always preface that with this doesn't happen it didn't happen overnight right That's this true. is like years and then i tell them if you have felt like this for years if you just give me six months and you start feeling better like what's the trade-off and i do have people who are just like no i just can't do it but even the people who don't really stick to the protocols that i have as well still end up feeling better in some areas and then i recently had a woman who was menopausal but she had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia had had joint pain all her life her hands she couldn't sleep at night because her shoulder was hurting and then we did her hormone testing and her gut testing put her on an elimination diet she started intermittent fasting and within two weeks she's like oh my gosh i can sleep on my shoulder i haven't been able to sleep on my shoulder for years my pain is going away within two weeks what 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 did the intermittent fasting do for her or well so Here's the thing, as far as intermittent fasting, if you're a cycling female, I'm a little bit more careful with intermittent fasting. For her, she had insulin resistance, right? Um, so when your insulin levels are high, intermittent fasting helps to bring that down. And a lot of, uh, one of the reasons that women, uh, well, anyone struggles with weight loss is if they have insulin resistance, that can be one of the reasons why they struggle with weight loss. So to make her more sensitive to the insulin, Intermittent fasting is awesome. Within two weeks of intermittent fasting, she also lost seven pounds. That's quite a bit. Uh, I mean, I usually like to think uh, think about weight in its actual sense. You know, four hundred forty eight yeah. grams is a pound, right? And times that by seven, that's a lot of weight, man. Yeah, and I think some of it is probably water weight because we eliminated a lot of like inflammatory foods from our diet. And so I think that what she saw initially was likely water weight because she was eating a lot healthier too. That's great. I mean, uh, 
so much of our diet is filled with garbage and it's a lot of it is desire and comfort food. Um, right. Like we're stressed and we eat something that, uh, kind of brings us a little bit of pleasure and hits all the, uh, bliss points in our brain. Um, and food is definitely designed for this. It's what yeah. makes it sell so well across the country. Um, it's great to see that your patients are seeing like quantifiable results, even within six months. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say six months is long. I, I just would imagine that some people would be like, no, I don't, you know, I can't six months. Uh, but you said it the best. This didn't happen overnight. Why are you expecting it to to be fixed overnight? Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And when I say when I say that to people, then they're like, OK, you're right. I mean, six months in the matter of your whole lifetime and you're going to start feeling better. But I do think that because within a month, people are starting to see changes or feel a little bit better that then they're like, okay, this is working and they're more likely to stick to it. Yeah, I'd imagine so. I mean, uh, results are like the most important thing that uh, humans can recognize to to feel like, okay, this is working. I can, I can do this. And when, when you don't see uh, any or very little, it becomes discouraging, especially with uh, with health. I mean, in any regard, but I'm going to take probably some of these things and see if I can help my wife with them too. Daptogens, mag you said magnesium blends. I know that certain blends have a higher bioavailability uh, versus, uh, you know, some there's some forms of magnesium that uh, like are high in what they what they contain, but just very low in availability. Like they just don't penetrate in the body. So, yeah. Or the other thing I'll find is that people hear, oh, magnesium is good for you. And they're like, oh, I got diarrhea. Okay. But you were taking like magnesium oxide or magnesium citrate, which is just one form, which is going to cause diarrhea. So that's why using blends, because you have like magnesium glycinate um, and then threonate, which are good for like stress, anxiety. So you want to get a little bit of all of them because they all do bit, different yeah. things. Yeah. Right. So, you know, some of it can help with the stress and the sleep and maybe some of the mood. Some of, Maybe some of the mood is relating to the fact you're not sleeping well. And it exactly. Kind of, <laughs> it kind of makes sense that yeah. after a while, you know, six months go by or, you know, a few months go by, people wake up and you're like, I feel a lot better and their mood is better and their relationships improve. And uh, it's, it's uh, something that I've mentioned before, especially when I deal with, uh, I deal with a lot of CBD I have since 2012. And, um, you know, it's a conversation we have often with people like, well, you're struggling with these things and um, it all intertwines. So as as you address one part of it um, and see results there, it's uh, likely to trickle down and affect all these other areas, right? If you're sleeping better, you wake up more refreshed, you're in a better mood and that can affect your whole day. Now you compound it day after day after day. It's um, it's huge. <laughs> Yeah. And even sometimes I think people can't explain the difference. Uh, my family still is not on board with this whole functional medicine thing. Like my mom is, but my brother still makes fun of me uh, for some of the things that I say. But my brother-in-law, I sent my sister magnesium because she was stressed and having trouble with sleep and she didn't take it. So he started taking it. And I remember I went home and he was just like, I feel so good. I don't even know how to describe it, but like I'm handling stress at work so much better and I just wake up more energetic and like he couldn't even describe it, but it was just one change that you made and he started sleeping better and it changed his whole day. 
Wow. So did uh, did your sister become a believer after that? Yeah, then she started taking it. But uh, yeah, I thought it was funny, but it's just simple because we're not getting enough in our diet, right? Because some people might say, well, why don't you just eat more foods that contain magnesium? But our soil is different and our foods are not as nutritious as they used to be. I recently did a presentation and it was crazy because in the research, they were saying that for the one orange that our grandparents were eating and getting all these vitamins and nutrients from that orange, today, we would have to eat eight oranges. Holy shit. Yeah. And that's you're you're uh, attributing some of that to the difference in soil difference in uh, in cultivation practices. Yeah. And so on and so forth. Well, and then also sometimes like you go to the grocery store and you're getting a fruit and it's from like Chile and you're like, why is this fruit coming all the way from Chile? Like, don't we have fruit in America? You know, and even like that transportation is going to affect the nutrients that we're getting from our food. Right. Even if it is just like a, a day. The 48, 72 hours of transport, like that does make such a difference, uh, especially in, in whatever manner it's being transported. Um, yeah. I imagine freight isn't going to be necessarily the cleanest method, but it's the fastest since you can load up freight with so much. It's giant yeah. freight liners. Um, but, you know, you make a good point. Why are they coming from all of these different countries? And that's more like geopolitical. We have these relationships and we want to develop them and help other countries uh, improve their you know quality of life and give them an opportunity to rise by purchasing the goods that they, uh, that, you know, they manufacture or that they grow. Um, but um it is a good question. Does America not grow enough food to uh, to sustain itself that we have to outsource it? That's I don't know. I mean, we we export a lot of food too to China and various other places. Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting, but the same would be said. We import a lot of food too, a lot of grains, a lot of you know fruit, and I see it all the time when I go to the grocery store. You know, this is a product of Mexico, or this is a product of some country in South America, and um. It's not that it's bad, but who knows? Maybe yeah. the soil soil quality is better in Chile. I don't know. I mean, and that could and that could be it too. But I think uh, I was recently listening to Chris Cresser. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's also a functional medicine practitioner. But he was just saying that most Americans are deficient in like the top ten most common nutrients, and that in his clinic, and he's seen thousands thousands of patients. He says. He remembers the ones who did not have deficiencies because they were so rare. So, wow. He remembers them because they're yeah. so rare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like by face, he said he can remember them because it just wasn't common. It was more common to see people with deficiencies. I mean, uh, what are the top 10 exactly? Or can you, if you can remember right. so even the top off, five? Yeah. Off the top of my head, I remember vitamin K being one of them, vitamin A. Not in that order, but vitamin D, magnesium. In the article, he also talks about choline. But those are the ones I can remember. Oh, and K2, right? He also spoke, wrote about that. Um, but yeah, those were the most common. And I think every like most of most of the people that I work with have magnesium deficiency and vitamin D. Vitamin D is really common too. 
which is crazy because all we got to do is take a walk in the sun for a bit, like every day, and that might take care of some of it. I don't know. Uh, I'm sure there's different forms of it, but um, some of the ones you mentioned, I've never even heard of. I'm familiar with choline. Um, from what I understand, I think that's more so working in the brain. I, I don't remember exactly, uh, like for cognitive function. Is that it can and, and energy as well, energy production. Okay. And a lot of us struggle with that. So how funny that that is a common issue. Um, and uh, you mentioned earlier, like supplements are just temporary. You want to use them until you feel better and kind of find a balance. But um, how often is it that uh, one can be like, after six months, cool, I don't need any more of these. And the body can actually just reach that homeostasis and stay there. So the way that I work with people is that we do it in stages, right? And I usually give each stage like two months. Okay, so for the first two months, we're doing this. And then we're going to wean off of some of the supplements, right? But also, again, we're working on lifestyle factors. Then the next the two months, and then after that, they're down to like two or three supplements. And, you know, I tell people like, hey, let's like, stop it and see what happens. Magnesium, I don't think you have to stop. I've been on that for a really long time. But some people are really nervous about like stopping certain supplements. And I'm just like, okay, you know, we'll continue because they start feeling so good. But um, so I think at the at the end, I like kind of leave it up to them depending on what what they are. Or we talk about how to cycle through different supplements, right? Not taking the same thing over and over again for forever, but just cycling through different things that you might need. Um, it is it is tough, but I do like when we start, we're heavy on the supplements and then we wean, we wean off. Uh, that kind of makes sense too, right? You cycle through them. So if you find a stack that works really well together, right? There's just a really good synergy between these three supplements. And then you maybe uh, find, uh, you know, like nine different supplements and you can break them up into those groups. Three of these work really well together. You do this this month, stop that. Next month you do those three for a whole month type of thing. Is that what you mean, like the the grouping and the um, and uh, on and off type of thing? Yeah, and I, and like some of them are not meant to be forever. You mentioned, you know, the ashwagandha. So let's just go with that. The ashwagandha it does help a lot with your cortisol response and it helps with stress, but it's not meant to be a lifelong medic, you know, supplement. That's one that you would cycle off, right? Because you don't want your body to become dependent on ashwagandha. Also, it what I remember with that one, the studies that I read is that it decreased your cortisol, right? You don't want to like dampen your body's cortisol response to stress, right? You just kind of want to help it. So if you're going through something very stressful or I don't know, something's happening at work and you just want to have that extra support, six to eight weeks, come off, try something else, you know, maybe more magnesium, L-theanine. There's so many things that you can take to help you with stress that I don't think it's good to just be on that same thing for long term forever yeah uh it's funny you mentioned l-theanine i've been experimenting a lot with it you know it's uh it was interesting to me that uh it's normally found in tea certain tea mm -hmm. um but probably not enough usually like uh from what i've read l-theanine is supposed to be more so relaxing for mm -hmm. for that function um but when i think of tea uh you it usually contains caffeine so that's kind of like you know, where's the balance there? There must be very little L-theanine uh, in tea because oftentimes we're feeling most of the, the caffeine effect from 
from consuming tea. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I drink tea and I, I usually just notice uh, the energy properties from them. Well, they have decaf ones. I don't know specifically which teas would have L-theanine. Like when I recommend that to people, it's usually like capsule or like the gummy form of it. Um, what's interesting about L-theanine and caffeine though, is that if you are drinking caffeine, it, it counteracts the stimulating effects of caffeine. Oh, so does it make it less effective? Like the caffeine? Yeah. Yeah. And like, let's say that you were out at work and you were drinking a, your last cup of coffee at 4 p.m., which hopefully nobody's doing. And then you're like, oh, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. If you took L-theanine before bed, that would help counteract that last cup of coffee to help you sleep. Really? Yeah. That's, that's going to be a cool experiment. I'm going to give that a try and see how I feel. I, I do consume a lot of coffee, <laughs> but I love the way it tastes. I mean, I love the way it feels, yeah. but I love the way it tastes. <laughs> I do too. Um, but I'm going to try and experiment in April. Like I'm going to try to come off of it for a week and see, because that's another thing people don't realize, like if you're having issues with your cortisol, that when we're anxiety, right. I'll ask people who have come to me for anxiety and I'm like, how many cups of coffee are you drinking a day? And they're like three or four. And then when they come off of it, they realize that their anxiety improves. It's like very overstimulating and we're so busy that we don't pay attention to what it's doing to your body. So I'm going to try to come off of it for a week and see how I feel. But I've had people who we eliminate caffeine and then they can't start drinking it again. They can't start drinking it again. That's yeah, because they notice like, oh, wow, I'm like getting really anxious every time I drink this cup of coffee or I feel my heart racing because they, they were so sensitive to it before, but probably didn't notice. But in they still like the taste. So I've had a lot of people switch to decaf. Oh, I guess. Yeah, that's an option. I mean, even decaf has a little bit of caffeine. Not yeah, but not much. as much to like cause, you know, with the symptoms they were feeling before. There's something that came to mind and I lost it. I hate it when this happens. I got to keep a notepad, you know, with uh, some of the thoughts that kind of cross my mind as you speak. Um, yeah, it was relating to caffeine. I, I read that uh, there's some type of uh, chemical in our brains that uh, are dissipating when we wake up and that it's best to consume your first cup of coffee for for the sake of longevity of the effect 90 minutes after waking up to allow the uh, full, um, I want to say, um, dissipation of those chemicals. Okay. This sounds like a conversation my boyfriend and I just had uh, because I, w I wake up and I'm like, coffee, let's go. And yeah. he waits the 90 minutes. Um, but what I don't, I don't, I think he listened to it on the Uberman lab or I don't know where he heard it, but it was pertaining to cortisol um, is what he was saying, because your cortisol response is like higher in the morning. Right. But you want it to naturally increase. Because it, it'll be high in the morning and then it increases mid-morning. And if you're overstimulating yourself with like caffeine, your phone, then you're not allowing your body's like natural awakening response to take place. That's what he was telling me so that I could stop drinking my coffee so early. I mean, I, I've tried it myself 90 minutes after I've woken up and the caffeine effect does seem to last longer. I don't feel the crash associated with it. Um but I've also noticed uh, I can function just fine without it, with plenty of energy. Yeah. So that's, I mean, I don't know. I just like the way it tastes. Feels good too, but I don't know. Um, I probably have to reduce my intake a little more. 
uh, I mean, would you say two cups, maybe three cups of coffee is too much in a day? Well, how big are the cups, first of all? Oh, they're small. Okay, Eight they're normal. or less, yeah. Okay, so two, two is probably good. And it also depends when your last one is, right? I tell my clients, anything after two o'clock, you should not be drinking. Why? Because the half-life, I think the half-life is about eight hours. Um, so it lasts a really long time. Wow. So it can affect your sleep. And I don't know if you use a wearable. Do you have like an aura ring, a whoop, or any of that? What are those? So I have an aura ring. And so basically this like tracks my my sleep, my exercise, heart rate variability, resting heart rate during the day and while I'm sleeping. And I have noticed that if, you know, for whatever reason I was really busy and I do have a four cup, four o'clock cup of coffee, that it does affect my sleep. And even though I felt like I slept great, my app will be like, you know, your heart rate variability is not where you wanted it to be. Um, you know, try again tomorrow, sleep better. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've noticed that. And even with uh, a glass of wine, like if I have a glass of wine too close before bed, you know, like we have a late dinner, my sleep is completely affected, even though most people would say, well, that glass of wine before bed helps me sleep. No, you thought it helped you sleep, but your body didn't really recover. Uh, yeah, I've, I mean, I've done some research here. Um, there's a number of things. Alcohol does not improve sleep. Uh, cannabis does not improve sleep. It affects REM sleep in a negative way, the impacts. And this is just, let's say, um, uh, casual consumption. If we're talking about abuse, like alcohol abuse, um, that's you're just knocking out. That is not REM sleep right. at all. Um, right. And and then the list goes on of th of the many different natural or legal or illegal substances that uh, have such an impact on on REM. Um, how how accurate do you think these uh, these devices are that you have on your finger? Would you say it's like highly accurate? Right. I trust it for a different reason. And I'll tell you. So remember I said that my, when I stopped birth control, my, my periods were irregular. It was awful. And I was using an app to track my cycles, but my ring would know more accurately than the app when I was going to get my period based off of the changes in my temp, my body temperature. So I would Holy look shit. at my app and it would say like, Hey, you're going to get your period next week. And my ring would tell me like, Hey, you're going to get it in three days. And I would get it in three days. Wow. That's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. And it's happened multiple times. So I, you know, I don't, I haven't looked into the data of the ring, but just based off of how close it is with my cycles, I would say it's pretty accurate. And what the ring is doing is mostly what temperature it's, it's measuring temperature of the body. It tracks temperature, heart rate variability, resting heart rate. Um, and then, you know, you have like, it can track your exercise. When I exercise, it'll say like, Hey, you did some movement. Like, what were you doing? Um, that's really what it does. And then it tells you how you sleep. It tells you how much time you spent in REM and other phases of sleep. That's pretty incredible. What, uh, what's the device called? Aura. It's O-U-R-A. I believe like the NBA team was using it for COVID or to see if they had COVID, um, during that whole thing but i will tell you uh that for me i mean i never had covid but i did get the vaccines because i was working in a hospital at the time and it was mandatory and 
it would tell me the next day, like, hey, you had a fever, your temperature was two degrees higher. Are you sick? You know, wow. like it, it was like very weird in that way. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, I'm surprised that they would want to uh, use such a method. I I couldn't really put too much emphasis on a device like that. I did experience COVID maybe once or twice. It's pretty awful. Um, but um, nothing that <laughs> nothing that would have uh, required uh, extreme lockdowns globally. Just my opinion, though. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, crazy to think that was um, three years ago. Yeah. The uh, the um, aspects of like hormone imbalances, and I know you are particularly dealing with women, but this uh, as a as humans, I mean, we're all kind of facing similar problems. How much would you say um, is uh, like? most of these issues relating to hormone imbalance are they mostly i mean so i see men too not my big population but i will say it's incredible the amount of 30 year olds that i've seen with low testosterone it's scary ah, that's what i was going to ask you about testosterone okay yeah it is really scary and then i think it comes down to again stress I think it comes down to the food that they're eating, a lot of processed foods, a lot of alcohol, which they don't realize is affecting their testosterone levels. And if they're not exercising even more, so it's going to come down, but it's really scary. I'm like, this guy is 30. I've had to, you know, I've tried different things with different people. I try to use peptides more so than like testosterone therapy, because ideally we're not suppressing anybody's testosterone production. But for some guys they are like, no, I feel like crap. Put me on testosterone. And you're like, oh, God, you know, because when you start testosterone, that's pretty much a lifelong long thing. Really? Like you can't stop it after? Or it would be it would be very hard. I think that's a conversation that practitioners don't have enough with people. They're starting on testosterone because if you're giving someone endogenous testosterone, you're suppressing their own natural production of testosterone. So now over a long period of time, it's going to be a lot, lot harder for you to stop it and then have your body start making it again. And even when I've tried to lower someone's dose, they feel it. They're like, I feel like crap and I'm not lowering it by a whole lot, but they're like, I don't feel good. Like, can you bring it back up? Right? So when I use peptides, peptides are to kind of help your body's natural production of testosterone a little bit more. It's like a booster. And that one you know, you can do for a couple of months, but if they tried to stop it, it wouldn't be like the end of the world. And I'm also and not harming their fertility status. Which, uh, what, um, tea therapy would? Yeah. Wow. And we're talking 30 year olds. I mean, I understand. I've wondered about this myself. I'm 34 and I do notice a difference, but, um, I, I lean more towards functional medicine, herbal supplements, and trying different things, uh, including the obvious. So when a 30-year-old hears this and you're telling him what's going on, you say, okay, peptides is what I want to lean towards, but here are some of the other things you ought to do for the next three months. Um, how is that perceived generally? 
guys are a little more impatient. I'll say, <laughs> I'll say that. Um, you know, they're not usually like, okay, I'll wait three months and do all this stuff. You know, they want to see immediate results, and I get it because they don't feel good. Um, so I say it's mixed. For for a lot of people, I try the natural supplements first. If stress is an issue, we work on stress diet and really like weightlifting naturally increases your testosterone. So I encourage that. Really? Um, it doesn't yeah. have to be like heavy weights, right? I mean, heavier-ish, right? More so than like running five miles every day. Wow. So yeah. So like, you know, I would say if you can lift heavy-ish, it's better. Um, is but- that like, is it because it's sending signals to the brain or the body as like y- you're pushing your muscles to do something it's not used to or not um, accustomed to do? Yeah. And I think if you, if you think like of nature and how we evolved, right, like the more physical exertion that you're doing, the stronger you need to be, right? So your body's like, okay, let's release this testosterone and help this person like do this thing. But what are we doing now? We barely exercise. We're eating all the time and we're eating poorly. We don't <laughs> sleep well, right? And then that's not to say like all the environmental toxins that we're um, exposed to, that's decreasing people's testosterone. You mean like air quality water quality which is highly chemically treated so that and i would say plastic because the bpa is like a xenoestrogen it's like it acts like estrogen in people's body or yeah it mimics that so that's also Hmm. not beneficial have you heard about um using some form of like metal bottle i think it's copper because of the way it um i don't know I'm probably going to sound dumb because I don't remember exactly, but the way it ionizes the water or something of that type. Have you heard this? Vaguely. One of my clients did did do that and she told me why and I don't remember, but I'll tell you, we did her um, hair mineral testing and she had one of the best results I've ever seen. I almost like I had to call the lab and say like, Hey, are these labs messed up? (laughs) <laughs> so, so i don't know i think she was doing other things aside from the copper cup for her water but there was something about that that i'm just like hmm i wonder but i didn't really look into that i'm yeah i'm very curious i've been looking for copper bottles you know uh, travel size whatever it is and damn are they expensive it's like 40 dollars or 50 dollars for a bottle when I've wow. researched it. And then the question becomes like is this really copper or is this you know just being advertised as that I'm not going to go do a metallurgy test on this thing just to make sure. (laughs) So, but it's very curious. The, um, what do you call it? The act of just lifting weights. I've noticed for, for men, and I guess it's biological that our, our muscle buildup is substantially faster. I mean, you can do a, a week's worth of, uh, let's say 10 pull-ups a day of your own body weight for a week straight and the results are pretty amazing it's really rapid is that like a biological response to what you're doing as, as a male well yeah and you I mean testosterone helps but also i've had guys come to me who work out all the time and have like these little spaghetti arms and then you like test their testosterone and it's like really low so I think it's the testosterone, right, that you guys have in abundance, hopefully, 
that helps you build, you know, the muscle faster. Um, but like, that's one of the things that I ask guys, like, okay, are you working out? Yes. Okay. Do you feel that your performance is where it needs to be considering how much you work out? Are you building muscle, you know, that makes sense with what you're doing? And some of them don't. And that's what I'm saying. Okay. They probably have low testosterone. So if I'm building muscle faster with this simple, you know, 10 pull-ups a day, is, does that somewhat mean my T levels are okay? Well, I would test because there's other symptoms. So the things that guys will come to me for are, you know, low libido, energy levels are really low, brain fog, and brain fog for them is something that they can't even really describe properly, right? Because it's more than just feeling tired. Um, it's like, almost like they're sleepwalking through the day. Um, and that's a symptom that they come to me for. And then the other thing is they'll say I'm working out and I'm not seeing results or I work out and I feel more tired after I work out than when I started. So then I'm just like, okay, something's going on. So it's just like all those symptoms together that I'll kind of be like, okay, let's look into this. Uh, a question I came across that I, I was wanting to ask you is, is this all out of pocket or are you able to accept people's insurance for, for this type of treatment or medicine? All right. So for testing, yeah, we can do that through insurance unless we're doing the salivary cortisol stuff. Uh, that's a kit, the salivary cortisol that I send to people's house, but hormone testing. Yes. That's covered by insurance. Unfortunately, peptides are not covered by insurance, uh, but depending on which one you're on, they're not, relatively speaking, not super expensive. It's about 80 to a hundred dollars uh, for the peptides. And it's not something that you have to be on long-term. Like I said, sometimes for people it's three to six months while they're just working on tweaking lifestyle things. Uh, I mean, you've said that multiple times. It seems like the lifestyle aspect is really the key to, um, to turning things around. And then obviously having your guidance on, uh, on you know how to really approach the supplements and everything else uh, and of course the most important what you see through the labs what what are the lab reports showing um, yeah and I'll, and I'll mention another thing about testosterone that i don't think a lot of people know but if i have like old, like today one of my clients 59 year old guy he has a uh, high cholesterol insulin resistance and yeah lifestyle factors we definitely need to work on but his testosterone is really low when you put a guy like that on testosterone, it'll improve his lipid panel. And to a certain degree, it'll improve his insulin sensitivity. Because also then they start losing weight, which further helps with that, right? So it's not like testosterone is only so that you can feel good and be good in bed, right? Like there are physiological reasons why you would want your testosterone to be within a normal healthy range. I see. Because it's affecting a lot of these other things too. Correct. It's amazing. I mean, um, do you know of uh, any over-the-counter supplements? I mean, I don't think you can just buy peptides, right? Is that something that can that's only prescribed? Yeah, uh, the peptides, yes, have to be prescribed. Um, but I just put a post on this last week. Ashwagandha was one of the things that can help with uh, testosterone. No kidding. The other thing, yeah, fenugreek, black seed, maca, making sure that you have like normal vitamin D levels and zinc also help with uh, testosterone. 
These are all, but don't I mean, start. Yeah. Don't start them all at the same time. I had someone reach out to me and they're like, I bought every single one of these supplements. I'm gonna, <laughs> and I'm like, no, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> is, well, is there a danger to taking them all at the same time? I mean, I don't know, but that doesn't sound like a good idea. But also, how will you know what worked, right? If you took them all at the same time? Yeah, you're just taking a cocktail of supplements. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I would say two to three at a time and see what happens. That's what I was going to ask. I'm like, what's the optimal amount at any given time? Two to three. Um, And maybe some research, right? If you're on your own, research about which ones will do what the best and which ones react better together. Is that a thing? That could be, right? Because, you know, they do have like symbiotic relationships, some of the supplements. But I think also if you're going down that path where you're like, okay, I'm going to start taking these supplements. Let's also please look at your diet. Are you getting enough protein, right? Like, are you eating healthy? Because if you're going to take every single one of those supplements, but you're going through the drive through every day, that's like, that's not because some people do that. They're like, I'm just going to take every single one of these supplements and see what happens. No, you got to clean up your lifestyle first too, right? Because then why are you wasting your money? You can't continue to eat like shit, you know, and just taking supplements and pretending right, everything's but it, okay. But if you cleaned up your diet and you're like, wow, I'm still not feeling great, then I would say, yeah, look into the supplements. Make sure that if you're on medications that there's no interactions with what you're taking. Um, and that's pretty much it. But just be careful, right? Like two or three at a time, not the whole thing. Um, For somebody that, let's say... You, Generally, any supplements will always have the disclaimer. You should speak to your doctor first. Um, how do you? How would you think a person should approach their primary caregiver about supplements? I mean, I'm sure their response is never that positive, or I don't know how informative a doctor could be about these things. But if one was yeah. to be like, "Hey, doc, I'm thinking about doing these things because I think this is what's wrong." I feel like doctors generally are like, you've been on WebMD again. You know, that's not going to help you. I'm the professional. Yeah. In the primary care setting, I don't know that doctors are super helpful as far as supplements go because they might not understand it. They don't have the time to look it up. You know, they don't know what it is. So it's just like, just stop it. Because with me, I have more time with my clients, right? So when they're like, hey, I'm taking all these supplements and I see that their labs are off, I'll start looking up, okay, what are the what can this one do? Can this one increase your potassium? Like all this stuff. I start looking it up because I have the time. I'm never going to tell someone to like stop taking everything because those are not the ones I prescribed. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to see, okay, what do your labs look like? And I just make sure that it's not causing any issues because I have found, I'm thinking of two cases in particular, one where uh, this patient had high potassium on her labs and it was consistently high for several months. And her doctor was just like, stop taking everything that you're taking. But when you look up, only one of them was causing the high potassium. And as soon as she stopped that one, that one um, resolved. Her labs got went back to normal, right? So it's just like, you got to be careful because sometimes they could have negative side effects. And then the other one for that 45-year-old woman I was telling you about, she was taking a supplement that she had heard on a podcast, you know, was beneficial for your skin. But what she didn't realize is that it was further decreasing her estrogen levels. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was a definite like, hey, never take this again. Right. Because she thought she was helping one thing, but it 
she was perimenopausal and decreasing her estrogen levels even further. Damn. That's that's a tough spot to be in. And it's like if you're progressively getting worse too, you're just at a loss. Like, I don't know what to do. This is where you come in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's why the supplement part, I think that you have to talk to someone who, you know, a naturopath, a functional medicine doctor, someone who works with people who are already on supplements, because that way we can do the research for you and just see if it's having any negative interaction. Because I have seen that, unfortunately. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, there's a process to everything. Speaking of which, um, is there, is there formal education for functional medicine, like practitioners, or is it just like you, you go to school, you do your six years, you get, you know, you get your degree and then you can go practice medicine or, uh, I mean, do your residency. And after that, it's, you're kind of on your own or is there, is there more yeah. schooling? Well, that's one of the things I, I tell people, not all functional or integrative medicines practitioners are the same. I don't know. There are websites that you can go to and see like, are they accredited or have they done the training? I did a two-year fellowship after my internal medicine residency. I did it in integrative medicine, but then I was like, okay, I didn't feel like it was enough. So then I did additional training in functional medicine. Um, and that was through the Institute of Functional Medicine, Integrative Medicine. They have a fellowship from the University of Arizona wow. in Tucson. So like, I did years of extra training, but I think from what I've seen, I've seen people who are like, oh, I saw an integrative practitioner. And then you're like, okay, were they really or were they just saying that they were an integrative medicine practitioner because they didn't really do any of the stuff that I would have done? You know, and not to say like, I know everything, but it's just like, it's not, it didn't really make sense. And it wasn't helpful for the client. So uh, you can go to the Institute of Functional Medicine and look up practitioners on that website to see like who got the training there. And then also if you went to the um, University of Arizona Integrative Medicine website, you can also look up practitioners in your area if you want to find someone and if you want to make sure that they're just like certified or accredited through a program. That's helpful for, for all the listeners and watchers. That's uh, something that you guys can do to find just the right person in your area. Uh, that was something that had crossed my mind. And I said, um, you know, is there training? Is there additional education? I mean, cause this is, I imagine, um, functional medicine is not that popular yet. I believe it's the right. future. I mean, what do you think? Oh, I agree. I don't think that what we're doing is sustainable. Right. And I, from what I've seen with my clients, people genuinely do want to get better right? And they're just not getting the help that they need in a traditional setting. So I think the more people start looking for these alternative med medicine routes, the more popular it's going to become. Right. Because it's, uh, I mean, the results speak for themselves. And as more and more people come out and be like, I'm seeing results and I did it this way, uh, naturally, I think this is where traditional medicine um, fails on a uh, broader scale is that uh, they, they tr you know, it tries to treat on a broader level of diagnoses and treatment that uh, is already kind of documented. Um, mm -hmm. But what you're doing goes so much deeper to uh, to an ana analytical level, like really looking at what's wrong. Um, and the uh, the information is in the labs. 
is having to take the time. It's I'm sure it's hard if you're yeah. if you're a doctor with your own practice or you're at a hospital, you're seeing so many people that it's hard to care. It's just a it's just a number. I feel like I mean I I try to look right. at it from both sides, right? You know, yeah, doctors you're just are people trying to get too. By. Yeah, yeah, doctors are people trying- too. Yeah. And I, I think that it is very overwhelming and you're just trying to get through the day and you have administration, even if they wanted to do something differently, administration would come and say like, no, you need to do it this way. Right. Cause we can bill for this. You know how many times <laughs> I've had people from the billing department come up and be like, Hey, you need to write it in your note this way so we can bill for it. And you're just yeah. like, can you just like, like want me to do my work, please. Um, <laughs> but it's just like, how can you bill for it? And then when I'm doing my thing, everything is, People ask me like, what are you going to do for me? I don't know. Like, let's sit down and talk because everything is individualized, right? There's no set protocol that I'm going to dump on one person just because you had similar symptoms to this person. And then when I'm reviewing the lab, not kidding, it takes me half an hour before I sit down with a person to review labs. Wow. Because, you know, and I'm also taking notes so they have them, but like I'm reviewing things. Okay. Hmm, I've never seen that before. Let me look it up and just make sure that I know what, you know, what this is or what we got to do. Like it really takes time and you can't do that when you're seeing 25 patients in a hospital. Right. That's a lot. That's a long day. If you did half hour for each one. Yeah. So I, I, I don't really ever see more than like six or seven people a day. Which is still a lot. Like, yeah. It's still a lot, but you know, in the hot, in a normal primary care clinic, you'd be seeing like 15, 40, 15 to 40 patients a day. I can only see six or seven because I'm taking my time. Yeah. But you're, I mean, you're, you're a wealth of knowledge and what you're giving back is far more valuable. I mean, it's insight into the mechanisms of the body and, uh, and because everyone is different, it's going to vary so much from one person to the next. And this is why I say traditional medicine fails here because it's just, uh, it's inefficient uh, to individualize treatments, uh, unless it's terminal, right? Unless it's cancer. And even that has like standardized, uh, methodologies that have been established, which, um, I mean, I heard recently, uh, from somewhere there was, uh, individuals diagnosed with stage four breast cancer and they had turned to, uh, some holistic medicines and the example that was given where they saw, um, quantitative results where where it um where the cancer just disappeared it was turkey tail mushrooms um i don't know exactly what turkey tail was doing but from what uh what i understand some of these mushrooms uh have huge benefits on um, immune support and um immune functions uh do you do you know anything about this can you speak about like mushroom applications for any of these yeah. Uh, so there's many different types. And um, I know that when I did a presentation on mushrooms, that there was a part in there that I read about Japan using mushrooms in combination with norm- normal um, chemotherapy regimens, but they were using that the mushrooms additionally to the treatment to help improve and augment what was going on with the treatment. And I do remember Turkey tail being one of the ones that they were using. And it was because there was a compound in there and I was like looking this up while you were talking because I remembered it. It's called like PSK polysaccharide K, 
which is the active compound in the mushroom that they were using to treat uh, cancer. But then there are so many other like maitake, rishi that help improve and strengthen your immune system, right? Uh, not even cancer related, but like lion's mane is known to be really good for cognitive. So, you know, cognitive function, all of these have different components, but I remember reading, and if you look it up, like the PSK9, they even have like studies in traditional Chinese medicine as that being one of the treatments for, for the cancer. Now, I don't know that I have enough evidence or data to say like, okay, just do turkey tail mushroom, right? I think currently I'd feel comfortable saying like you can use it in combination with your treatment because I don't know that there's enough data that I've seen yet to say, okay, don't do chemotherapy, just eat these mushrooms. Chemo is so expensive, man. Yeah. Um, a topic that I'm so curious about, and I'm hoping you have some insight here is like cancer itself it is such a bizarre disease um and i'm i mean i just want to understand how this thing even comes to be where it a disease that turns on the body and uses the body to grow stronger to continuously eat away at like the the energy of you know the host uh anything you have read that can kind of satisfy my curiosity here about like where where is this thing even come from why is it that we see so much cancer okay so i think there's multiple reasons and i will tell you one of my friends my best friends is an oncologist in georgia and she's treating a lot of 30 year olds with cancer which is beyond me i cannot understand that like i cannot understand that However, being on the Florida side of things where I'm not seeing that many young people with cancer and I'm seeing a lot of insulin resistance and metabolic disease, I can tell you that there is evidence in studies showing that being insulin resistant, having high insulin levels can promote the growth of cancer cells. Okay. So that's one thing that, because we have a lot of people with diabetes now, right? Like the numbers right. are insane. So I think that when you have those high glucose levels, that, that high systemic inflammation and the high insulin levels itself can promote the growth of cancer. The other thing that we don't talk about enough at all is our detoxification pathways, right? Like everybody, you detox through, you know, bowel movements, you know, uh, sweating, urine. And I think some people are having a lot of trouble detoxifying from our environment, right? Like the amount of toxins in our environment and our food has grown so exponentially and our body's ability to detoxify really has not. And if anything, how many people do you know who suffer from constipation? Right? I mean, like, well, sure I don't know if you deal with it. Well, there's a I'm lot. Sure there's a lot. Yeah, but I mean, I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know of anybody. <laughs> okay, well, I talked to a lot of people about their bowel movements, so I can tell you it's a lot. And wow. then like even, even, you know, women in particular, how are you metabolizing estrogen? Women who have a lot of PMS symptoms, breast tenderness, acne, all these things, that's trouble with metabolism of your estrogen, like detoxifying your estrogen pathways a lot of times. So one of the things that I bought to help me with my detox pathways, I have a sauna blanket, right? Because you need to help clear this out because what had like, to extra, you know, sweat more because if you're not releasing these toxins in a healthy way, then you're increasing your risk of cancer as well. well. Well, what about those people with hyperhidrosis? I believe 
like 10, 15 years ago, there was at least 3 million people that suffered from that. Me being one of them. Yeah. So, <laughs> I you know, what's interesting about that is that I work out all the time. But when I did my own like detox pathway stuff, uh, it was terrible. My detox pathways were so bad. That's why I bought the sauna blanket. I think that there is a genetic component to how we're able to detoxify. And I know that for people who do the DNA testing, that they can see that in, in those labs as well. Wow. Last thing, and then I'll let you go because I'm sure you're busy. Um, and I sincerely appreciate your time. You're, you are a wealth of knowledge. Um, you mentioned diabetes and that it's mm-hmm. such a growing problem. Um, is that is that more so like eating foods that have way too much sugar or beverages or a combination of like the consumption of those products plus the type of um, sugars or sweeteners that they are that the body just isn't able to break down. I, I've read a lot that we, we struggle to our, our gut and, and our body struggle to break down a lot of the things that we eat, right? Like flour, mm-hmm. flour being one of them, bread is so toxic. It's unbelievable, but it's bread. And there's better, like Ezekiel bread is amazing. And I love it. It's like right. sprouted root or something. And uh, when I eat that, I feel great. Not so I much. I feel great when- too, but it's an acquired taste. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it tastes good. I don't, it took a, it took yeah. a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, because you also have glyphosate in those products, right? So I think that you're correct. I think that um, diabetes is a result of the processed foods that we're eating. Uh, and then also like the artificial sweeteners cause dysbiosis, right? Cause they're feeding the bad bacteria in your gut. And I really do think that we're just scratching the surface with your gut microbiome and gut health things, because I think we're going to find that there's going to be certain bacteria that can increase your risk of insulin resistance, right? Because when you're not breaking down these artificial sweeteners that we're putting in our food, you're feeding it to like gut bacteria, right? It causes dysbiosis. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's diet, it's the drinks that we're drinking, like these are these sweet things. And I think people are just not, people don't move. I think I just recently read this book and I recommend it to anybody, mostly my females. It's called The Spark Factor by Molly Maloof and it's a biohacking book. But in there, she talks about how many people get like the exercise that they're supposed to get, which the recommended amount is like 150 minutes per week. And it was something like only 12 or 13% of people get that much exercise in a week. And I don't know how many of them didn't get even like a thousand steps a week. It was something crazy, right? It's like very, very little though. 150 minutes is very little. I thought so. But only 12 to 13% of people are actually getting that much exercise. So it just shows you like as a society, we need to move more and then, you know, the dietary things, I think that that's a combination of people's individual choices, but also very little regulation from higher up. It's funny you say that because when I speak to people overseas, um, their governments don't tolerate the practices that uh, are allowed here. You know, um, eggs, milk, various different foods in Europe uh, just um, seem to be 
a lot more regulated um, yeah. and, and, and better, but better quality, uh, safer. Um, it's just strange that lobbying has taken over every facet of life here, uh, of every function across the board. Um, so I would agree with that, thing. but I think people even who travel abroad and then come back, like the food tastes different and you feel different when you're eating it. Right. Yeah, that's true. Incredible. Well, thank you for an hour of this time that you've, uh, given me. And, um, I hope to have you back on again sometime in the future, six months or so. And as I, um, do more research and do more learning and find ways to uh, ask better questions so that um, that way we can help listeners and readers and watchers uh, discover the um, awesome power of functional medicine. I mean, the power is within us to change. It's just difficult to change. Yeah, it is. And there's a lot of, a lot of times there's a lot of moving parts, right? So to have someone to help you guide you through these different stages, I think it's helpful. Yeah, agreed. 